elders are to protect the flock. Elders are to protect the congregation by teaching them sound doctrine, but also refuting error that creeps into the church. And why is that important? Because godliness only comes when you have elders who teach you the word and who protect you from error. And when you are godly and growing in your faith, then you are going to have an evangelistic impact on other people. And that's how this ties in. You cannot have a strong evangelistically minded or missions minded church without leaders who teach you the word of God. Because if you're not taught the word of God, you're not growing. If you're not growing, you're not going to be interested in evangelism. I know a lot of people who cringe at the word doctrine. To many people, it sounds like a boring exercise in intellectual and theoretical concepts. But doctrine is not a dry discussion of irrelevant trivia. Doctrine, simply put, is the basis of every one of our thoughts and actions. All that we say, think, and do is based on what we believe. Doctrine is nothing more than a description of what we believe. If what we believe is not true, that lays a foundation for living that will lead to one problem after another. One major problem that false doctrine causes is that it interferes with evangelism. Welcome to Verse by Verse, a radio Bible class taught by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve has been teaching from the third chapter of Titus about godly living in an ungodly world. This chapter has a lot to say about evangelism. Here in the final few verses of Titus 3, the Apostle Paul told us about three things that we need to watch out for if we are going to be effective witnesses for Christ. One of them is false doctrine. Here's Pastor Steve with our lesson. Let's open our Bibles to Titus chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to be reading the concluding section of this wonderful letter, beginning at verse 9. Titus chapter 3, verse 9. Paul writes, But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and they're worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. With these words, the Apostle Paul concludes his letter to Titus. And while at first glance, you may, uh, you, it may appear to be unrelated, kind of disconnected thoughts, sort of like Paul's just putting some finishing touches together. There's nothing that really relates to one another here, nothing that holds together because the substance of his letter is over. Uh, that's not really correct. These verses are, are quite related to each other. They do have a theme, and uh, they're really related uh, to the whole letter. That's important to keep in mind as we think how this section relates to the overall book, to keep in mind the overall book. And what is the main message of Paul to Titus? The main message is this. Paul's purpose in writing to Titus was to help the young Christians on the island of Crete, several churches, uh, a, a group of young believers on this island, help them to lead godly lives in order to reach out with the gospel. 
That's basically the, the purpose of this letter, to help them to grow, to help them to understand their responsibility in reaching out with their lives, adorning the gospel of God, their lives being attractive to the unsaved community. Now, that's not the only form of evangelism. We do have to speak forth our message, but that is really the heart of, of uh, Paul writing to Titus. In other words, this is a letter designed to strengthen these new Christians for godly behavior that would make the gospel attractive to the lost around them. And that's why uh, the emphasis is on, in this book, is on sound doctrine and sound works, good works, because sound doctrine leads to godly living or good works, and godly living makes the gospel attractive to the unsaved. That, that is the big picture of Titus. So as we break it down in chapter 1, Paul uh, stresses the importance of godly leaders in the church, that elders ought to be men of God who will teach sound doctrine. Let's look at chapter 1 again as we kind of bring this all to a head and, and see where Paul is, is going in the last section. Chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So there was a plurality of churches, and each church had a plurality of godly men. And then Paul goes through listing what the qualifications for these men are. He says that, um, for example, uh, he goes on to, to speak in verse 6 about they should not be above, they should be above reproach. They should have children who believe. Verse 7, um, he speaks of them being the steward, the steward of God. Verse 8, they should be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. And then in verse 9, he tells us what is the function of an elder. What is a primary function, I should say, because they do a lot of things, but primarily they are to hold fast the faithful word, meaning the word of God, that is in accordance with the teaching, that is apostolic teaching. They are to teach forth the word of God. Why? That he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And the thought is this, that elders are to protect the flock. Elders are to protect the congregation by teaching them sound doctrine, but also refuting error that creeps into the church. And why why is that important? Because godliness, godliness only comes when you have elders who teach you the word and who protect you from error. And when you are godly and growing in your faith, then you are going to have an evangelistic impact on other people. And that's how this ties in. You cannot have a strong evangelistically minded or missions minded church without leaders who teach you the word of God. Because if you're not taught the word of God, you're not growing. If you're not growing, you're not going to be interested in evangelism. In chapter two, the emphasis was on godly living in the church and the home. And in that chapter, Paul broke down various age groups, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and slaves, various age groups of members in the church, and told them their responsibilities. For example, chapter 2, verse 5, but I want you to see how their responsibilities would influence those outside of the church. Older women are to teach younger women, he says, to be, verse 5, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Older women are to train younger women because when the world sees younger women functioning as godly mothers and wives, they will take notice that something is special about these women and the word of God is not dishonored. So once again, godliness leads to an evangelistic impact. He says also in verse 8, sound in speech, which is, and speaking of 
young men, and, and uh, Titus was included in that. Sound and speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Here, once again, your life affects unbelievers. Verses 9 through 10, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So he says, slaves, you be a certain kind of person. Why? Verse 12, or, or verse um, uh, verse 10, not pilfering, but, you, but showing the doctrine of God, and that's what we really want to say, adorning the doctrine of God, putting on the doctrine of God that others might see the Savior in us. Now, as we moved into chapter 3, Paul's stress has been on our behavior towards secular society and the government. And basically, the message of chapter 3 has been obey and submit to the government and do good deeds to, uh, towards unbelievers. Live godly lives in, in terms of pagan society. And I want you to see chapter 3, verse, um, verse 3 says this, For we were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. He's saying, be ready for every good deed because you were once like this and you ought to be patient towards those who are now in society. You you ought to be understanding because you were once like them. And notice the end of verse 1. Be ready for every good deed. Be ready to reach out to people who are not always kind to you. Be ready for every good deed. Why? Why is this important? Verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. Now watch this. These things are good and profitable for men. What he's saying is this. Once again, your good deeds have the opportunity to make a difference in the lives of other people. They're good and they're, and they're beneficial for others in the sense that they're practical helps, but also because some, by looking at the way you live, are going to be attracted to the gospel. So throughout this letter, Paul is really teaching them how to have uh, strong evangelistic churches. Now having said all of this, about how to have a strong evangelistic impact on the community that we live in, Paul now closes his letter by telling Titus about three things that, quite frankly, threaten to stop the evangelistic impact of a church. Three threats that uh, not only our church faces, but every evangelical church. And that's really what these closing verses are about. And you have an outline and you have notes that you can fill in, but it's about threats to evangelism. There are three three uh, threats here that Paul speaks about. And by way of application, it's this. If Lakeside wants to be a church that attracts unbelievers to the gospel, attracts people visiting us, attracts uh, people to the gospel we go out and interact with, uh, then we need to be aware of what threatens us, what threatens us so that we would be a strong church in evangelism. There are threats that are built into our nature, built into church life, and we need to know how to deal with them or else we're going to fall prey to being a church that just gives money for missions but has no evangelistic outreach, has no evangelistic impact. So if you're ready to take notes and follow the study, I uh, invite you to begin by looking at verse 9 because the first threat to evangelism is, number one, false teaching. False teaching and it's, it's deeper than what you might think because it affects us. It affects all of us, and the potential is there. Notice verse 9. But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul opens up this section with an important word of contrast. It is the word but. 
B-U-T. And it is a connection between the previous verse and what he's saying now. It's a word of contrast. And what he's contrasting is the orthodox statement that God has been kind to us in Jesus Christ. He's been so kind in salvation and the false teaching circulating in the churches at Crete. Notice verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good works. These things are good and profitable. Then he says, but shun foolish teaching. In other words, Titus, you are to stress the kindness of God in salvation. You are to stress that in your teaching. You are to gravitate to that. You are to emphasize that. However, when it comes to this other stuff that's circulating in the churches, shun it. Don't pay any attention to it. Stress one thing, but avoid another thing. Now, that is the contrast, and it's very, very important for us to understand. Very important. And so we want to look more closely at this. That's the, that's the big principle here is, is stress the, the truth, but avoid error. Now, let's look more closely at it. And the first thing, after Paul says, but, by word of contrast, he says that above all things, Titus, you are to shun false teaching. And you and I are shun false teaching. So we need to understand, what does that mean? What does it mean to shun false teaching? Well, the word shun basically means to avoid. There's nothing particularly deep about this. It literally means to turn oneself about so as to face the other way. If you see false teaching, you just turn away from it. That's, that's what it means. So Titus and every believer in Jesus Christ is to purposely turn away from the error that you might be exposed to, especially error in the church he's talking about. Not error outside of the church, but error in the church. And we're all sort of be careful about error outside the church, but he's talking about errors that were circulating in the churches. Now, specifically, what was going on in these churches? And this is important for us because this kind of stuff, in principle, is still with us. There are three uh, specific errors that these people face. Number one, he says, shun foolish controversies. Foolish controversies. Now, what does it mean? What does what do controversies mean? Because different people might have different views about what's controversial. Well, we're not left to really debate this because this word controversy is used in um, in three other passages in uh, Paul's letters to Timothy. If you look at First Timothy chapter one, and we'll put it together as we look at it. First Timothy chapter one, verses three through six. Because it was uh, what was going on in, in uh, the world on Crete was very similar to what Timothy must have endured at Ephesus. We, we don't even know the exact specifics of it, but we do have a general idea about it. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise, and here's the word, to mere speculations. It's the same word, controversy, speculations, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Let's turn. uh, Well, let's just read a little bit further because you'll see. You'll see it more. Verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is to love love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. So this was uh, speculative stuff, debating stuff, fruitless discussion. First Timothy chapter 6 tells us more. First Timothy 6 verses 3 through 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrines conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. 
but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language and, uh, language and evil suspicions and constant frictions between men of depraved minds and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Then in 2 Timothy, the word is used again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, but refuse foolish and ignorant, here's the word again, speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels, in other words, arguments. Now, when you put all this together, it is very clear what Paul is talking about. He's talking about controversies, which he calls foolish, or, or by the way, really, it's um, uh, uh, stupid, you could say, moronic. We get our word moron from this word foolish. Uh, controversies that are futile, speculative questions, arguments based on human reason and imagination rather than the word of God. That's what he's talking about. Speculative stuff that uh, might be interesting. In fact, it must have been very interesting, but uh, it had absolutely no biblical authority. And one of the marks of a, of a false teacher is that he replaces the very clear teachings of the Word of God with novel thoughts, speculative insights, and the result is that believers, true, genuine believers, sincere believers, often get caught up in this and they get confused and, and misled by this speculative nonsense. They get caught up in discussions about this stuff, and, and it's, it's fruitless. It leads nowhere. It produces arguments and quarrels. And why? Why does it do that? Because if it's based on speculations rather than the Scriptures, there's no line of authority. There's no authority. No one can settle the dispute. They go on and on and gone because no one can say, thus saith the Lord. So they're, they're fruitless. They're, they're just ridiculous. They're speculative. Now, folks, the reason, and this is where it ties into evangelism, the reason that foolish controversies are to be shunned is because if you embrace them, then you fall into the devil's trap of replacing evangelistic efforts and resources with stupid debates that don't amount to anything. There's only so much time, only so much energy that we've been given God doesn't want us to focus on these ridiculous things that are fascinating and interesting, but they would lead us away from evangelism. And that's where many believers are. Listen, by way of application, you and I need to be careful about this stuff. You and I need to be careful about those who would like to argue about unimportant things, even if it relates to, to theology, unimportant things of the faith. How many hours have been wasted by Christians arguing minute points of theology. How many hours have been wasted by, by minuscule details that could never be settled? They could have been evangelizing the lost, but they love to debate. I agree with Warren Wiersbe, who wrote this about people who argue. He said, I have learned that professed Christians who like to argue about the Bible are usually covering up some sin in their lives, are very insecure, and are usually unhappy at work and at home. And, and you see, these arguments become a substitute for true spirituality. I met people like that. They want to debate and argue about peripheral issues. And when you try to deal with the heart, they'll change the subject. They, they don't want to do that. They don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. They want to debate. You know why? Because it makes them look spiritual. It really makes them look spiritual. They like to win arguments as well. Paul says, shun that stuff. And let's not miss Paul's point 
While it is true that all false teaching is foolish, that's really not Paul's primary point here. His primary point is that it would be foolish to engage in discussions about this stuff. It's a waste of time. That's what's really foolish. It would just be a waste of your time. Listen, I urge you, don't spend your time in debating over theological theories. Don't do that stuff. God wants us to evangelize, and if your time is taken up with these fruitless discussions, you will not evangelize. So the first specific error going on is foolish controversy. Secondly, Paul says genealogies. Now, what does he mean by genealogies? Because you might think, well, I thought genealogies are good. They're in the Bible. I don't understand them, but they're in the Bible. Well, genealogies are are very important if they're inspired and they're profitable for us. In fact, um, genealogies teach us the the, uh, uh, messianic line of Jesus to prove that he is truly Messiah. Uh, Genealogies were important as far as the priests and, and kings of Israel. And there's lots of good, uh, profitable Bible study from, from looking at the genealogies, but that's not what Paul is talking about. What he's talking about are genealogies that uh, were speculations about Old Testament genealogies. In other words, myths and legends woven into true genealogies. The Jewish people would come up with elaborate stories that uh, maybe had some truth to them, but they were woven into true genealogies, but they were legends and tales that they just made up to, to make things look a lot, uh, a lot more interesting. In fact, I remember years ago, uh, an uncle of mine who comes from an Orthodox Jewish background said this. He said this as I was a believer. He told me, he said, have you ever heard this story about King David? And he went on to a whole, whole thing about King David. And I thought, nobody's ever heard this story about King David. And no, it's certainly not in the Bible. But you see, where did he come up with that? Well, those are Jewish myths and legends. And it was interesting. And, uh, but, but that's, that must have been kind of what Paul was talking about. To take genealogies, but mix it in with these legends and tales and embellishments, and they would have all these discussions on this stuff. Paul says, Titus, as interesting as these fanciful tales are, and they must have been very interesting, don't even investigate them. Don't get into that stuff, because they are of no value to you or the body of Christ. Now, why are these things so dangerous to us? Because they turn our minds away from the plain truth and they, they give you, and here's a great danger, they give you a thirst for what's sensational. Do you understand what I mean? There is a thirst you can get for the sensational where you want to go deeper and deeper into that. It hurts your appetite for the Word of God. It can be great fun to speculate about whether there is a code in the Bible and all sorts of other things. But Paul said we are to avoid such time-wasting and misleading conversations. We'll learn more about why that is true on the next Verse by Verse. We are glad you joined us today, and we hope you can stay with us for the rest of this three-part message by Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These radio adaptations of his messages are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. We are thankful for the listeners whose prayers and gifts keep these classes on the air. If you would like to listen again to today's lesson, or to find out how you can help support this ministry, please visit our website, versebyverseradio.org. Our CDs and cassettes are available by telephone. Each disc or tape contains an entire message without announcements. Get yours by calling 727 239 0306. 
Leave your name and phone number and we will return your call during normal business hours. People just seem to love controversy. These days, it seems that almost every time an entertainer, business leader, or politician says anything, it leads to an argument. If there is no controversy, someone will invent one. But this is nothing new. Controversy has been with us ever since Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. We choose up sides and prepare our arguments. Often, as in the case of Cain and Abel, the dispute is a serious one. But more often, we invest tremendous amounts of time and energy in discussions that, in the grand scheme of things, are of no importance at all. Paul says we are not to get involved in either kind of controversy. Either they are not important, or, if they are important, they are already settled by Scripture, and there is nothing to argue about. On the next verse-by-verse, Pastor Steve will show us some examples of both kinds of controversies the ones about which there can be no argument, and the ones not worth arguing over. And we will see the clear-cut reason the Apostle Paul gave for avoiding controversial speculations. I hope you can join us. I'm your announcer, Jerry Pruden. (music) 